with Gilligan, the skipper too, the millionaire and his wife, the movie star, and the rest are here on Gilligan's Island. Welcome to another edition of the New Hampshire Journal Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham, coming up the newly elected president of the state senate jeb bradley who's served in washington and in uh, concord he's going to join us in just a few minutes but first i'm delighted why am i delighted number one is i'm at castro's in bedford recording this podcast surrounded by political hacks i've got a padrone i've got a bushmills and i've got the legendary josh Crosshour of axios with us so uh, don't mind the background noise from the uh, rowdy crowd here castro's josh you are missing out I wish I was in Manchester here on this uh, December day instead of being in Washington, but I still am enjoying being on the podcast to talk politics. So what would you be drinking if you were here, Josh Crushauer? You know, that's a, that's a, that's a, what did I have last time? What I was, what did I have last time? It was a, I think it was a New England uh, a brew. I think you had uh, one of our 603s maybe. Yeah, that well, was. I got I also have to apologize. We've fallen so low in New Hampshire. Some people are actually watching soccer. And that's kind of a well. That was a big, a, you know. I I don't watch a whole lot of World Cup, but I did see the upset, the uh, Brazil uh, losing <laughs> earlier today. Don't so. don't. I refuse to score? discuss third. I refuse to discuss third world kickball on the New Hampshire <laughs> podcast. Not going to happen. So, Josh, I want to ask you since you're in D.C., you're coming from the national level. We are obviously obsessed with the first in the nation primary politics here in the Granite State. But I wanted to ask you, how does this fight look? from outside from you know dc and from the national democratic and republican party's perspective well look i don't think it's really registered yet in so much as we don't know what the calendar is going to look like even though the white house and the dnc have certainly put their their stamp on on the process uh it sounds like new hampshire is going to do what new hampshire was, wants to do and we also know that in the entire history of the new hampshire presidential primary it was all about it was all about symbolism it wasn't about delegates it was about the importance that new hampshire voters took in vetting and doing the town exactly. halls and, and understanding that you could actually campaign throughout the whole state of new hampshire go town to town and get to know who these candidates are so look i think the big outstanding question is what does what does uh, the the legislature do what does the what does the secretary of state do in new hampshire what what is the move from New Hampshire politicians and whether, you know, look, if New Hampshire is still the first in the nation primary, will, will Democratic candidates come in and, and go up to New Hampshire like they always have, even if they don't have any delegates that, that, that are at play? Um, and, and by the way, Republican, the, the, the 2024, it, it's very possible that the only game in town is going to be the Republican Party primary. And they're not changing any of the rules. New Hampshire is still going to be the first primary in the country. So, you know, I don't know if it's going to have as dramatic of an impact as at least some of the, the DNC members are intending it to. So I want to get to that, the mechanics in a second, but I, I'm just curious about how New Hampshire is viewed. Like, do Democrats think that there were calcifrant children who ought to get in line? Do you think that they just anticipated this and planned that way? Because if you look at the original calendar before Biden bigfooted it, it was New Hampshire, Nevada going first. Yep. And I think they assumed New Hampshire would just basically break that. And so it would be functionally Nevada going first before Biden got in. So how, what what are your sources down in D.C. when when the issue of the calendar comes up? What's their attitude about New Hampshire? And by the way, you're free to share their insults and demeaning comments because <laughs> it's New Hampshire. Screw you people. We don't care. Well, you know, it depends on who you talk to. Um, and, and look, the, the big debate going into the, the, the process 
from from my perspective, from my sources, was Nevada versus New Hampshire, which state was going to go first, and whether I, you know, I, I had gotten the impression that the White House didn't want to pick a fight aside from Iowa being out of the picture, and and I didn't think there was going to be a huge change to the calendar aside from Iowa being sidelined and Nevada moving a little bit up in the in the process. But look, uh, the 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 wrap on New Hampshire, and this is no secret to you guys is that there are a lot of folks at the DNC, there are a lot of folks within the party, and a lot of folks in the Biden White House that think the state is too uh, racially homogenous. The, the, what, 93% white. And that's not where the Democratic Party is these days. And with identity playing such a big role in internal Democratic politics, especially in, in the last five, 10 years, uh, that was the big rap on, on, on New Hampshire. In fact, in fact, it was really the only rap um, because I think New Hampshire, New Hampshire scored highly on a lot of the other categories they were they were looking at, whether it was a competitive battleground state. Well, obviously, this past year's elections show that it still is a battleground state. You know, whether it, it, it's compact and you can actually uh, campaign without having to spend tons of money on the airwaves. New Hampshire is one of the best states in the country for for that uh, for that process. And and look, it has the history that that matters a whole lot um, when it comes to not wanting to disrupt the apple cart. So really, when it comes down to it, the the, the one reason why. Um, well, I'll say two reasons. The one reason, the one main reason why Democrats were looking to sideline New Hampshire is because of its, its, its you know, 94 percent white, 93, 94 percent white population. And I also think that Biden specifically finishing in I was, I was in New Hampshire in 2020 when he finished in fifth place and raced out of New Hampshire as fast as he could after giving his concession speech. Um, he, you know, he did not have good memories. Uh, in the Granite State in 2020. So there may have been a Biden-specific reason why he was looking to punish New Hampshire and reward a state like <laughs> South Carolina for, for the process. Yeah. And that's the message from uh, everyone from Governor Chris Sununu uh, on down is that this is about Biden. The, the, the final calendar with South Carolina and my old stomping grounds where I grew up uh, going first is that that was not a DNC decision or a diversity decision, that that was specifically a Biden decision. Where do you fall in the conversation about protecting Biden versus promoting diversity? You know, I think the latter is actually, that was all, Nevada, I mean, like I said before, Nevada versus New Hampshire was the big storyline I was focused on going into going into the week um, in that, you know, there, there was momentum in some corners of the DNC to at least push Nevada up to the same same day as New Hampshire as first in the nation uh, in terms of the primaries. Um, so, look, everyone always said that the, the Biden White House would have the final say on this calendar. I don't think <laughs> a lot of DNC members expected that they would be so aggressive in, in disrupting the traditions, uh, the, the, the New Hampshire's place uh, on the calendar and moving a state like South Carolina, which, by the way, South Carolina was fine being number three in, in, in the lineup. In fact, I think they actually preferred being the state that uh, essentially, you know, picked the winner, right? New Hampshire and Iowa traditionally always would have winnowed the field down. South Carolina was a, was a state that has traditionally, at least in recent elections, picked the winners. So, you know, I, I think South Carolina was totally fine with that, that status, and they actually liked it. And for them to go first it was a bit of a surprise uh, to them in so much as everyone else. Uh, so, yeah, like I actually still think the diversity factor was that that was what, what put New Hampshire's status in jeopardy in the first place. Like, I don't think we'd uh, even be talking about New Hampshire's first in the nation standing being jeopardized if it wasn't for sort of the, the diversity issue that so many DNC members had been talking about. Well, you're certainly right about South Carolina. You know, I ran campaigns down there and uh, 
I will tell you that from 1980 until 2016, the last competitive Republican primary, the only person to win South Carolina and not win the nomination was Newt Gingrich in that kind of fluke primary in 2012. So you're absolutely right. The firewall was built by Lee Atwater, then Governor Carol Campbell and Rod Sheely, the strategist, and they put it in place. And so it was working fine. They definitely didn't want to see it. Uh, one of the questions we have up in uh, the Granite State is when Senator Shaheen for, in Hassan, for example, declined to attend an event as they did last week, and when they complain publicly, does that have any resonance at all in D.C.? Or is that just like, well, they got to, you know, they're they got to they got to talk the way they got to talk because they're from the Grand Estate, but doesn't really have any impact on how people view the decision to move the date. Yeah, well, look, I think there there was no coincidence that they delayed the timing of this announcement until after after the November uh, election when Senator Hassan was was on the ballot. Uh, I think, uh, look, I I think. I think her decision to cancel the event at the White House is more symbolic than anything else. They, you know, got to show that they're representing their state, and, and there are a lot of angry New Hampshire Democrats. And and, and look, this process is, is not over. Um, the, the, I think the biggest test, Michael, that we're going to look at going forward is what they actually do to try to, you know, circumvent the, the, this new proposal and, and really guarantee that Democrats come to New Hampshire no matter what what the DNC says. And that's going to be the biggest test for someone like Senator Shaheen and, and Senator Hassan going forward. It's one thing to skip a White House event and make a symbolic show of opposition. It's another thing to actually work work uh, your tail off to make sure that this this proposal doesn't get implemented or at least doesn't allows uh, other Democrats to go to New Hampshire and, and participate in the primaries as they've done in the past. Well, as reluctant as I am to toot my own horn, and I will stop here so New Hampshire Journal readers can laugh at that. Uh, you know, we were saying all summer long that we were in real trouble that this Nevada play was a legit play, and the word from the New Hampshire Republican Democratic establishment was, no, 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 we're on board. The day before the vote, the chairman, Ray Buckley, was saying it's all set, nothing to worry about here. And I said, no, there's really things to worry about here because the, the party, as you said, the party has really focused on the issue of working their coalition, including you know black voters, Hispanic voters, et cetera, that was certainly part of the deal. But there's a conversation now going on about when New Hampshire has its primary, and they will, and the Republicans and Democrats will have it on the same day. They will, and it will be first. It will. If someone's challenging Biden, assuming he runs, he's able to run, or if it's a wide open primary, will there be attacks? Let's say, just I'm just picking names at random. I'm not predicting anything, but let's say Pete Buttigieg, for example, did well here, decides he's going to come campaign in this primary. And let's say Kamala Harris, once again, just picking a name, says no, you could have a situation where Democrats are attacking other Democrats for trying to get the votes of white voters. And that, you know, that that may not matter in New Hampshire, but I got to think that blue collar white voters in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Arizona, Nevada are going to hear that message and go, wait, wait, there's something wrong with trying to get us to vote for you. Why don't you want our votes? That, that, that's well, let, a let, potential minefield. Let me give you a little against the grain uh, analysis here, because I think Democrats, I, one of my big rules of, of political analysis is that a lot of politicians always fight the last war instead of expecting the future war to come, politically speaking. And I think what Democrats, I mean, this was a calendar that that's designed to protect Joe Biden assuming he runs for re-election in, in 2024. But well, this could be almost a moot point. If, if Biden runs and doesn't have any primary opposition, you know, we may not even be talking at all about any of these, any of these things. Exactly. Because of, right? And I think the risk that Democrats did by changing this calendar is that it is a very favorable calendar to someone like Vice President Kamala Harris, who, you know, in Washington, if you talk to Democrats that are her friends and even folks that are not big fans of Kamala Harris, there are real concerns about her political, you know, abilities and her ability to be a strong nominee in the future, whether it's 2024 or 2028. And New Hampshire, you know, 
one thing I haven't covered so many New Hampshire primaries. I, I think because because of Bernie in twenty sixteen, Howard Dean in, in 04, there's sort of a reputation that New Hampshire Democrats, just like Iowa, tend to pick the most progressive folks. And I think there's some truth to John Kerry. You know, you know, there's some truth to that. But I, I think some people can conflate the regional favorites versus the ideological makeup of the primary. And Iowa is a, a, a caucus. They always go to the left in, in Iowa. But New Hampshire has a lot more, much more of an independent flavor. Um, it, it, you know, Kamala Harris was actually polling in seventh place in one poll that came out over the summer, uh, testing the 2024 primary field and any 2024 primary field. And I actually think that, like, there, there, you know, the, New, New, having New Hampshire having a state that is in the Northeast has this independent streak. And I, and I think has a pretty moderate electorate for the Democrats compared to some of these other states. South Carolina is a moderate state too, but there are a lot of electorates that, that may be pulled to the left um, in, in, the, in this calendar. And it certainly would be a state, you know, South Carolina and Georgia and Michigan are pretty, um, you know, I think Kamala friendly states uh, if you had to play this, this, this race out. So, you know, I, I think there is a lot of unintended consequences. Democrats almost want some Democrats want Biden to run to preempt any kind of civil war within the party going forward that they're worried about Vice President Harris and her ability to run effectively as president. Well, look, this this is a calendar. I, if I was Kamala Harris, I couldn't be happier about this calendar uh, because she's gonna, she would have had a big problem in New Hampshire, I think. And the, the South Carolina is much more favorable towards her. Um, and I would think Michigan would also be a good state for her as well. So, you know, that 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 is the I, I always believe in the law of unintended consequences. And this could cause some problems down the road for the Democratic Party, even if it doesn't in 2024. See, the reason I read Josh Kroshauer at Axios regularly, and I, I truly do, Josh, I'm not saying this to suck up to you because why would I suck up to you? I mean, really. But <laughs> but um, you broke news here on the New Hampshire uh, primary. You said that they're in D.C. There are, in fact, friends of Kamala Harris, which is astonishing because I've never. I haven't seen that in the media coverage. I've heard a lot of she's having a lot of struggles with the Democratic leadership in D.C. And so what we're hearing out in the hinterlands, Josh, is that a lot of Democrats don't see Kamala Harris as a great standard bearer should the party need a new standard bearer in the near future. I mean, look, I don't need to tell you the guys this when you can read a poll and look at sort of her favorability numbers, which generally underperform Biden, um, generally are you know, lagging behind where Biden, even Biden is, and his Biden's numbers aren't particularly good right now either. And, and you just look at, you know, I always believe when I cover politics, you look at the, 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 the back of the baseball card for politicians and their winning record, or their losing record, their record of winning and losing and so on. And, you know, when Harris didn't even get to Iowa in 2020, and, you know, the fact that, you know, the fact that she underperformed, when she ran for attorney general and barely won that race in 20. I mean, there's a lot of warning signs, including what, what what's transpired and what's been covered endlessly since she's become vice president. So, look, candidates can grow and they can certainly, you know, I certainly could see Harris, if she ran in an open 2024 field, being being a nominal frontrunner. Um, but that's what worries a lot of Democrats, as you know. Like, that's what worries the party, that if Biden doesn't run, you have a wide open field. And even if you think Biden has his own vulnerabilities, the alternative could, could well be worse. And you know, once again, maybe it's because I grew up in South Carolina and ran campaigns, or I keep an eye on the polls. And one of the things that we reported in the in 2019 leading up to 2020 is that Harris was underperforming in South Carolina compared to other candidates and compared to white candidates. You know, in, in the in the among black voters, there was not a even Cory Booker was outperforming Kamala Harris in South Carolina. So that's uh, an issue. I want to ask you something completely unrelated because I've got Josh Kroshauer from Axios, and that is. Well, how did the bombshell drop of Kirsten Cinema announcing she's going to leave the Democratic Party, caucus with the Democrats, but be an independent? 
uh, the phrase shocked but not surprised comes to mind. Um, yeah, I, I don't think anyone was like truly stunned that Kamala or that Kirsten Cinema would uh, become an independent. Um, it, it's it, it, it's a lot. There's a lot of self interest politically involved for Senator Cinema. She would have lost in all likelihood a, a Democratic primary against someone like a Ruben Gallego, who's a liberal uh, congressman who's built a little bit of a name for himself in Washington. Um, you know, she was worried. The polling is showing her way behind uh, even a generic de- Democrat uh, in a primary. And she's been saying this for months now, that, that primaries are on both sides are reflecting the extremes. You saw, I mean, New Hampshire was a great example of that on the right in 2022, but it's the same on the left, that the, the far left can dominate some of these primaries. And it would have been tough for a moderate like her to, to win. And at the very least, she would have had to, pan- to win. She would have had to pander uh, and, and, and say things she didn't believe just to get that nomination again. So this is, you know, I, the big question in Washington, Michael, is, is this a play for running for re-election as an independent? And I think she certainly could win, but it's by far from a guarantee. It's, it's still a very difficult road ahead politically for her. Or is this kind of a play to kind of save face in preparation for perhaps retiring and, and doing as much legislatively for the next two years? And then when you look at polls showing a, a tough race, then she can step aside without perhaps, you know, causing as much, much, much uh, angst with it within the Democratic Party. Well, I promised uh, Josh I would get him off the podcast before the ice in his Mai Tai had completely melted. So I'll wrap up with one thing here. And that is uh, Chris Sununu. Obviously, he's uh, focused a lot of attention in New Hampshire, and he's you know doing a lot of interviews and little extended podcasts with Politico, and he's on cable TV. He's almost on as often as It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, he's everywhere. In D.C., has he gotten past the arched eyebrow phase and into the lean forward phase yet, or is he still just one of those names out there with the and and the rest. Remember the old Gilgan's Island when it was uh, the movie star and the rest? Is he still at the and the rest? Well, he, he's a great quote. He's a great interview. He's an important player, not just in the primary calendar process, but, you know, being the, the home state favorite for likely in New Hampshire if he ran for president. Um, so he's, he's definitely someone to watch. I, I always enjoy chatting with him whenever either I'm up in New Hampshire or he, he's down in D.C. But look, I think the hot flavor of the moment, and I think someone who probably has some staying power beyond 2022 is Governor DeSantis in, in Florida. And I know some of the early polls, which don't mean a whole lot, but early polls in New Hampshire show that DeSantis is quite quite formidable, uh, would be formidable in a Republican primary. But we're, he's, he's gotten support beyond just the base. He's really kind of uh, captured the imagination of a whole lot of conservative uh, voters and, and presidential primary participants down the road. So that I mean, look, I think Governor. It'd be interesting to see, like, if Sununa ran, you haven't had. Well, you would know better than I. I would, Michael. Like, the, there's not there hasn't been a New Hampshire favorite, right? In no, the and even when you had a so, nearby, I mean, you know, people say Bernie won in part because of Vermont. I don't think that's the case. Uh, Paul uh, Songus back in the day, you know, it didn't help him that much to be from a neighboring state. Uh, some, you know, but Bill Clinton finished high enough to make that irrelevant. So I don't I don't know that a favorite son does it. Hey, I said I'd let you go, but I'm always a liar. You mentioned DeSantis. So the last, last question, have you had a chance to interview him? Have you ever, I mean, I'm trying to get a take. I, one of the things that's buzzing around is he's not that good of a retail politician. You know, he's he's good you know, from you know, the governor's mansion down in Tallahassee, but you get him out on the campaign trail, not so much. Watch out, he's weak. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm actually pl- hoping to go down to Tallahassee and, and spend some time with the governor in 2023. Um, look, I, I, I think, he doesn't like talking schmoozing with donors. He's not naturally like a 
a, a you know a town hall type of guy. Um, but he also like it's, but I think a lot of the the criticism that he just doesn't talk doesn't like people. And I think that's also a bit off. I mean, you know, I think it's just that there's a certain artifice of politics that he doesn't totally love um i think that's he likes the policy he likes governing um and look that's where the question is where is the republican party's in where where is in the, if trump we'll see what happens with trump but if if people are looking beyond trump in 2024 do they want someone who's kind of just just going to say it like, like he like he thinks and get things done and none of the performative stuff about politics matters or or will they want to go with someone like a governor sununu who's he loves the the politicking i mean the guy um is a natural and that used to, the sununu model used to be what worked in politics on both sides right i mean bill clinton is a great example of that but yeah generally the schmoozing the liking you know liking to go out and about and really take the, the photo ops with the voters that was the model to win in new hampshire and to win even beyond um desantis is a different model but trump was also a different model and that worked and we may be in a different phase of politics where you know the retail politics doesn't matter quite as much as being able to get on tv nationally and dominate people's social media feeds and if uh you know if, if desantis can like take on the media and, and take on some of the the big uh, bugaboos on the left and get some attention for it online with the right you know that might be that might be what it takes in 2024 so we'll have to see but I don't think the fact that he's not the biggest schmoozer, that's that's disqualifying, especially these days in politics. And I remind people, he ran for Congress, and you can't run for Congress without talking to people. By the way, that first congressional campaign against a whole bunch of other Republicans, he outworked, and he out-campaigned and did all the, the, the stops compared to his, his op- opposition. So he knows that. It's not like DeSantis can't do retail politics, and you know he, he can get out there and, and outwork everyone on the retail front. It's just that he's not going to be as talented as a Sununu or a lot of other Republicans in that front. Well, listen, I love your weekly uh, newsletter at Axios. I read it every, was it Sunday night, right? That it drops? Yeah, Sunday afternoon. We have a cinema. We'll have a cinema-focused edition this this week. But yeah, always a lot of reporting and intel from, from the Beltway and, and, and my analysis as well. Well, it's the second best newsletter right after the New Hampshire Journal newsletter that I recommend. Josh Crosshour, <laughs> Axios, thanks so much for joining us here on the New Hampshire Journal podcast. You're missing out my, I got to go get another Padron. This one's almost done. So I will talk to you later. I'll take it. See you, see you Michael. So State Senator, or should I say State Senate President Jeb Bradley, welcome to the New Hampshire Journal podcast. Always great to speak with you. Yeah, thank you very much, Michael. And you know what? It's uh, Jeb is always the best. Well, Senate President Bradley, um, I was in the room when you uh, were, you know, t- took office for the and addressed the uh, Senate for the first time. And what was what I think people don't realize it caught me by surprise. It really was a collegial environment. It was not, you know, people going at each other, hammer and tong, none of the resentments, none of the back turning of you know members across the aisle. Is that typical for New Hampshire State Senate? Yeah, you know, look as I said on the. Um, Senate floor the other day, I really appreciate Senator Susie's professionalism. And, you know, she has a lot of respect because she treats the job, you know, with honor and dignity. Right. We're going to have our disagreements, but we keep it, you know, we keep it agreeable. And that's the way it should be. So, you know, when she became Senate president, Chuck Morse, as the minority leader, seconded her nomination. Then two years later, when Chuck became Senate president again, she seconded his nomination. So when it's, you know, if it was 12-12, I think it would be different. But when it's clear, 
what it's going to be, then, you know, as I said the other day, we're all glorified volunteers. We have mm -hmm. fancy license plates and, you know, cool titles and all that. But at the end of the day, we're volunteers. And I think that, you know, at least in the New Hampshire Senate, where there are only 24 of us, you know, your ally today may be your adversary tomorrow, may be your ally the next day. Exactly. You just can't do anything other than try to treat people with respect and recognize that even somebody that's very different politically than you is still a glorified volunteer, and they're working to the best of their abilities to try to make New Hampshire a better state to live in. And I, and I think that's the beauty of the New Hampshire Senate. Well, sometime when we're having a beverage, I want to discuss with you how insane it is that for 200 plus years, you've had an even number of members in a legislative body. Because it is just absolutely hilarious. It is hilarious. pretty unusual that um, the House would be that close. So it's very unusual. No, 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 no. But I mean that you have an even number. I mean, the idea, there's a reason why Congress is four. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, right. You, you right. would think that at some well, you know point what? in the past 200 years, you guys would have gotten your heads together and said, maybe we should have 25 senators or 23 senators. And maybe the House should have. Two, 399 members or because if you're not going to have a lieutenant governor to break the ties, it is just crazy. But let's move on. I want to ask you while I've got limited time with the House divided so closely, how does it change in your mind the role that you would expect the Senate to play versus, say, back after 2010 when there was that you know huge blowout for the Republicans or, or 2018 where you had a big win for the Democrats? How is this different for you and your job? So I think that you know, always the most important job that, you know, the legislature does is crafting a two-year budget. And I think we have to make sure that, you know, we have a budget that continues to do everything possible, especially with high energy prices, inflation, recession on the horizon, to make New Hampshire economically as competitive as possible. That's the, you know, that's the first priority. The second priority you know, protecting taxpayers, so no income tax, no sales tax, protecting the tax gains that we've made on business taxes that has made New Hampshire more competitive. And then the third thing is um, we have to meet the needs of the people of the state of New Hampshire. So mental health, substance abuse, um, families with disabled children, protecting children from abuse and neglect, those are priorities that senators on a bipartisan basis have worked on, you know, over the last several sessions. And I think, you know, we have to make sure that we have the resources for that. But I'm not expecting that our revenue picture as we get into the next budget is going to be as strong as it is now. So we've got to be careful too and prioritize right. and make sure that, you know, we're getting value for everything that we try to do. So one of the things that you're spending money on that Democrats object to are the education freedom accounts. As you know, the American Federation of Teachers, uh, with the backing of their national, it's not often we get a press release from a national teachers union head, uh, Randy Weingarten, say that what the state is doing is unconstitutional, that uh, lottery revenue by per the Constitution must go to schools and, and to public schools, not to private schools and other choices. So two things. One is, are you stealing money from education, public education, by backing the FAs? And number two, what do you think of this uh, lawsuit? 
Well, let me answer the second question first. I, I don't expect it's going to uh, um, the, the American Federation of Teachers is going to win. I think it's carefully designed um, to meet constitutional tests. Um, when we did the tax credit legislation that Jim Forsyth sponsored a number of years ago, that was challenged too, and it withstood the challenges. So I feel pretty, you know, pretty good about that. Um, secondly, you know, the program has been very successful, and as a parent of four kids, I know that kids learn differently. And I had three kids that graduated from Kingswood Regional High School. It was great for them, but my daughter needed something different. I was fortunate to be able to provide, right. you know, for the choice that my daughter needed, but not every parent is, especially parents of modest means. And so, you know, what's happening with this lawsuit is American Federation of Teachers is targeting lower income students and their parents to try to end the opportunity and choices that these parents feel is really important for their kids. So. You know, we'll see what happens, but um, good luck with, you know, the lawsuit because I, I just, I don't see it going too far. So looking for areas where there can be, you know, uh, crossover since you've got you know, such a close split in the house uh, and everything has to go through the house at some point. One area might be this conversation about education, not the EFA issue, but rather the fact that public school enrollment is declining for all sorts of reasons, largely having to do with demographics, et cetera. How can it be the case, Senator Bradley, that New Hampshire continues to spend more every year at the state and local level combined on education when the number of customers you're serving continues to decline? It's like I ordered a pizza, you took away three slices, but charged me twice as much for the pie. And that is a um, legitimate question for people to ask. And, and a a reason that you know we did um, pass education savings accounts to give choice and opportunity to people that may not be achieving that in you know in the public school. I mean, obviously, we want to make sure that you know public teachers who you know I think for the most part do a really good job and they're very dedicated you know to the students they serve. We need to make sure they're. Um, paid appropriately because it is a really important job. So that, you know, that has driven the cost. But, um, you know, education spending to a fairly significant degree is also controlled at local levels too. So what voters vote in based on the guidelines, you know, the State Board of Education obviously uh, plays out too. So, you know, when voters choose smaller class size, which has merit, quite frankly, um, you know, that's going to drive up the cost on a per student basis, even as the number of students decline. Now, having said that, Michael, you know, it's interesting that we're being attacked on education savings accounts because right. in the last two budgets, we've increased funding for public education by over a quarter billion dollars. And, you know, that was in the session where Donna Susi was Senate president, that was bipartisan. And right. quite frankly, you know, our side increased public education spending by $125 million in the last budget. So I think we've recognized that, especially when the economy is strong, and that's the way to fund education, not with an income tax, not with a sales tax, 
not with a statewide property tax, right. which is, you know, as controversial as either a sales or income tax, economic growth, generating good revenue, use that revenue as we have for the last two budgets to enhance funding for public education. But when you've had the number of students drop literally by 22%, so you, you've lost one out of every five customers for your business, and yet you are spending in raw dollars almost twice as much money from, as 2003. At some point, the tax, aren't the taxpayers going to revolt and say, what the heck? How can we be spending twice as much to teach you know, and, 20% and again, fewer kids? Those decisions are driven at a local level, too. So, um, you know, it's not just the state driving this. Right. And, and, you know, local voters have a say. It's called local control in New Hampshire. Uh, so, uh, another area where there's debate about local control is how to handle the mitigation for COVID, which is now turned into RSV and these other health issues. And you know, we don't know the future. We don't know what's happening. But I do know that people are much more focused on where the line is between public health and personal choice. Two questions. How do you think overall New Hampshire handled that line? And what about critics who say, look, the thing we learned is this is a circumstance where you just have to have more top-down guidance because public health doesn't end in your neighborhood or cul-de-sac. It certainly reaches across the state, if not the entire country. Well, I, I think that, you know, we are getting through this pandemic and the virulence of the virus is declining and more and more people have had it or have been exposed to it, maybe even had it without knowing it. Now, obviously, there are repeat cases and, and all of that, but right. I think that the days of, um, you know, lockdowns and masking, you know, should be long gone in the rearview mirror in New Hampshire. Um, I think that we have seen that while there may have been a measure of protection in schools, for instance, um, our youth paid the price for yes you know, being out of school for long periods of time for wearing masks when they couldn't communicate as well with their friends and their teachers. So um, I, I hope that those days don't come back again. Uh, is there one issue that you think maybe there can be significant progress on? One that's come up several times since Organization Day is the worst in the nation primary, not the first in the nation, which is the federal primary, but the horrible state primary system where you have the primary, you know, what, like, you know, 48 hours before the general, it feels like, and it's ridiculously well, late was... and you can, and 900 people can be on the ballot. There's no, you know, you have no restrictions on ballot access. No one has to do any work. Is that, is it time for New Hampshire? Just like your weird, even number of state senators, is it time to fix the state's primary system? You know, there was broad agreement in the last legislative session that we needed to change the date of our um, primary for state and federal races, U.S. Senate, governor, Congress, state right. Senate, et cetera. It's right now after Labor Day, and that's way too late. So the question is, are we going to do it in June, which is during a legislative session? Right. So people had, you know, qualms about that or do it at some point in early August. And I'd like to think that, you know, we're going to have an agreement um, hopefully this year as to a date change. I prefer 
um, early August. I think people go away in July, they come back, they, you know, we have very high voter turnout in New Hampshire. Voting is easy, um, even though we've made it more difficult to cheat. But um, having that September primary is way too late. So hopefully we'll find something that well, the, the governor, the, the governor's not happy about August. One of the dates I've heard float around is the Tuesday before Memorial Day, because then you still have another four or five weeks to work on legislative stuff before the crisis July. But, but I have limited time with you. I want to ask one more thing, and it's this is crass partisan politics. Governor Sununu has come out and endorsed Ryan Terrell for vice chair. Uh, as of right now, there's only one candidate for the state chair spot, uh, uh, National Committeeman Chris Ager. Uh, are you going to be endorsing people in this race? And do you think it's important for people who represent the more traditional end of the Republican coalition to step up uh, based on what happened with the, uh, the primary and the general in November? So I think, you know, it remains to be seen. I don't have a vote. I'm not one of the 400 um, delegates. So, um, you know, I want to wait and see what the field is like before I commit to endorsing. I mean, obviously, I like Don Bullduck a lot. I like Ryan Terrell a lot. Um, but I'm not, at this point, ready to weigh in. This is a problem with having an experienced politician get the job of Senate president. You're not going to give me the answers to the questions I want. You're going to be smart and give me smart answers. <laughs> smart answers do not help me, Senator Bradley, not in the least. Well, listen, thanks so much for joining us here on the New Hampshire Journal podcast. We really appreciate your time. Always a pleasure, Michael. And, uh, yeah, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much for listening to this edition of the New Hampshire Journal podcast. Please find us on Twitter, New Hamp Journal, on Facebook, NH Journal, and of course at nhjournal.com where you can sign up for our daily newsletter. I'm Michael Graham with Inside Sources. Thanks again for listening.